Saturday morning, the 24th, at the men's uh, prayer breakfast. Rick Miller is going to talk, and Yorm's going to be here, and I may entice Yorm to come over and talk as well for a little bit on uh, uh, Saturday morning at the men's at the men's prayer breakfast. Uh, give a little uh, update on some things going on in the Middle East right now. Then, um, so we've got the two events. One of the things, we're going to do a little something. I don't want to, when I close in prayer tonight, we're, I'm going to have everybody come up because we're going to do something uh, on Sunday night, and I don't want everyone, I'm assuming most of you will be here Sunday night, and so we're going to uh, sing both the United States National Anthem as well as Hatikva, which is Israel's National Anthem, and many of you may have never heard it or sung it, so we will have, I've got it on a, on a, uh, uh, little video and we will play that and it's got the words doesn't have a bouncing ball but I think you can follow anyway and the words are not in Hebrew they're, uh, they have been transliterated into English so we can sing it so that Sunday night we're not just like brand new at this okay and since we have a retired Israeli ambassador here and I'm not sure, but uh, Mir Shlomo, who's the consul general here in Houston, may be here uh, as well. So uh, that's for Sunday night. Then the next week, uh, or a couple of weeks later on September the 7th, we're going to have the CEF training. We need to have anyone interested in volunteering to help with the uh, Good News Club. We need to let Mark Friedrich know, let me know, uh, let Alan know. Uh, come for that, come for that training all day from 9 to 4, and lunch will be uh, provided for a short lunch break. We'll give everybody 10 minutes. Just kidding. I wanted to see if anybody was listening. $25 to cover the cost of, uh, of materials, and I think that should pretty much, pretty much cover it. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. After a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to make sure you're in fellowship and ready to study the word this evening, I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, it's a wonderful privilege to study your word, to take the time out of our busy lives and days, to be refreshed by your word, to be reminded that you are the God who oversees history, that though events may seem chaotic to us, that we may face opposition living in the devil's world, that things may be uh, difficult and hard at times, yet nevertheless we know that your grace sustains us 
It is sufficient for us and provides for all of our needs. Father, we pray that tonight as we study your word, we see an example in the life of Paul where he is sustained by your grace and he is strengthened by uh, your word and by God the Holy Spirit to fulfill the ministry that you've given him. And the same is true for us. So, Father, we pray that you might encourage us as we uh, study through this passage of Scripture in, uh, in Acts chapter 18. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're in Acts 18, and we are coming to, uh, we're, we're moving our focus from Athens, the seat of intellectual power in the ancient world, and we're just moving 40 miles down the road to Corinth, which is the seat of lust, lasciviousness, sensuality in the ancient world. Corinth was the good time city. What happened in Corinth stayed in Corinth. It was the good time city of the Roman Empire, and there wasn't anything that didn't happen uh, in Corinth. So we read at the beginning of chapter 18, after Paul had left uh, <clears throat> left Athens at the end of chapter 17, we simply read that Paul departed from among them, verse 33. There was a small group that had joined him and believed among them Dionysius the Areopagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Doesn't ever mention that there was a church founded in Athens, only that there were a handful of believers. So Paul leaves, and he is somewhat down. He's had a tough go for the last year or so from being uh, beaten by and flagellated physically in Philippi by the Romans and then uh, facing opposition in Thessalonica, facing opposition in uh, Berea, and then going to uh, Athens where he has very little impact. Paul is almost dragging into Corinth with his tail tucked between his legs. And he says that in the opening of of, of his first epistle to the Corinthians in chapter 2, verse 1. As we, as we see here, he says, I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. In other words, he's not using all the rhetorical flourishes, all the oratorical style that would appeal to a, a Greek audience. He determined to know nothing among them except Jesus Christ and him crucified. He had a completely different style of teaching, one that did not fit the norms and standards of oratory and rhetoric at the time because he wasn't trying to appeal to them in the ways that oratory appeals to people. He's trying to appeal to them in terms of laying out a strong rational, biblical case for Jesus being the Messiah. And in 1 Corinthians 2, 3, Paul says, I was with you in weakness. And the term for weakness there is the word asthenes, which shows up numerous times in Scripture. In about half of its uses, it means physical weakness or illness. And those are mostly in the Gospels, where we read about people with infirmities and sickness coming to Jesus to be healed. But even in the Gospels, about a third of the uses have to do with a spiritual 
weakness or just a mental attitude tiredness. In the epistles, it reverses its emphasis. There are a few cases where ostenase refers to physical illness or sickness, but in most cases it refers to spiritual weariness, and it refers to a mental attitude weariness. So he says, I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. It's like Paul's been rode hard and put up wet, as we say in Texas. He's had a tough go of it, but and, and that's important to understand that as background because of two passages we'll look at in 1 Corinthians 18, one of which where he is compelled by the Holy Spirit to go to the synagogues and to teach, and the other one, Jesus appears to him and personally in, in Revelation encourages him. And in both cases, these are unique manifestations of God's presence in the life of an apostle. We have to understand Paul and the other apostles were not like any other believers at any point in history. They were a unique class of Christian, according to Ephesians 2.20. The apostles and prophets were the foundation of the church. Now, if you've ever tried to build a house or a building, you know that you do not lay the foundation but once. Once it is laid, everything else is constructed upon that. You don't come in and lay that foundation every every time. And so in the early church, we have the apostolic ministry, which lays the doctrinal foundation for the church, and it was uh, validated by the miracles. They performed signs and wonders that in Second uh, Corinthians 12 are identified as the signs of an apostle. That's how you knew they were apostles. Not every Christian uh, performed miracles. Not And apostles didn't perform them very frequently. But they did because that validated their authority as an apostle. That's what set them apart as a leader and founder of Christian thinking and Christian doctrine. And so uh, specifically in relation to that, Paul is receiving direct guidance from God the Holy Spirit and the Lord Jesus Christ that's unique and is not part of the normal Christian experience. It wasn't part of the normal Christian experience in the first century. It was only part of the normal Christian experience for those who were apostles. So he is going to Corinth. Verse 1 says, After these things Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth. A few things about Corinth. First, first of all, Corinth is approximately 50 miles west of Athens, about a two-day walk, two- to three-day walk, or a day's sail. Corinth is located here on the northern coast of the Peloponnesian Peninsula, uh, 50 miles west of Athens. Here I've identified three other locations here, Athens here on the far right, and then as you see here, Corinth is located on the uh, Gulf, uh, Gulf of Corinth here. And across the Gulf of Corinth, you have located here, just as you approach the mountains, you have the location of Delphi. This is where there was the Oracle of Delphi. Delphi, uh, Isthmia here on the Isthmus between linking uh, Achaia with the Peloponnesian Peninsula. This is where they had the Isthmian Games, which were one of the uh, four or five locations of Olympic events. 
You have Olympia, of course, over here on the west coast of the Peloponnesian uh, Peninsula, and these were locations for uh, for various uh, various games. Cor- the city of Corinth was actually founded uh, far in the distant past, probably before 750 B.C. By that's the earliest mention that we have, and it was already a city by that time. It was one of the wealthiest cities because it's located between two ports located on on uh, uh, here in Greece, the Gulf of Corinth here, and this is a major trade route, so ships would come in from the west and they would offload and then it would be transported across the isthmus uh, and then it would be reloaded on ships and taken to the east. Today there is a, a canal there that is quite impressive and the ships go from uh, west to east and the other way carrying uh, carrying their cargo. <clears throat> uh, Mummius uh, uh, destroyed the city, who was a Roman general, destroyed the city in 146 B.C. because they, there was a revolt against Rome at that time. When the city was conquered, all of the city citizens of Corinth were either killed or enslaved all of its treasures taken to Rome, and according to Roman law, the city was not allowed to rebuild for a hundred years. In 44 B.C., it was rebuilt by Julius Caesar and officially renamed uh, Laos Julia Corinthus, and that be- it became a place to uh, Roman colony that was settled by retired members of the Roman military. So it's a port town with all of the things that uh, and activities and entertainment that sailors bring with them. It's a retired military town, and so it became known uh, for many of the, uh, uh, shall we say, lesser entertainments that are available in life. It was um, the third point. Uh, it was the <clears throat> uh, served as the administrative center for for the province from 27 B.C. on, which made it a strategic location for planting uh, Christianity because from Corinth the word could go out from converts on the ships to all points in the Roman Empire and beyond. Uh, the Isthmian Games, fourth point, the Isthmian Games were held uh, near here as well, once every two years, and it is believed that near the time that the Apostle Paul first came was when the games were present, and so it was an opportune time to be in the tent-making business in order to provide tents for all the people who were coming to the uh, uh, to the games. At the Isthmian Games in 196 B.C., that was before the city was destroyed the first time, the Roman consul Titus uh, Quinctius Flaminius proclaimed the freedom of the Greeks as the outcome of the Second Macedonian War. And this is a picture uh, dis, uh, depicting the coming of the herald in the midst of the spectators to make proclamation that the Roman Senate and Titus uh, Quintius Flamininus, uh, the proconsul general at the time, uh, having conquered King Philip and the Macedonians, were restoring freedom to the Greeks, and there would be no garrisons, no uh, outposts, and they were going to be able to enjoy freedom and their ancient laws and customs. 
and this would apply to all of the Greeks, and this is uh, referred to by Plutarch in his Life of Flamininus, uh, describing uh, Corinth. Its population, as you can see from this uh, picture taken from the Acre Corinth, which is a uh, high uh, elevation above the city, which is where they had the temple for Aphrodite, it was a large site. It was estimated that the population was about 250 to 300,000. Now, there are some who claim that it may have been as high as 500,000, but that is uh, debated in a lot of the literature. It was probably somewhere uh, between uh, 200 and 400,000 uh, slaves, probably closer to 300,000. It was an extremely pos- prosperous city because of all of the trade and all of the opportunities for business, and it was also a town that was noted for its licentiousness. Here's a shot, an aerial shot of the uh, Isthmus of Corinth as it is today with the canal that comes uh, uh, between the two gulfs and uh, provides uh, for trade. And I've seen uh, one time when we passed over there, uh, you see ships going through there and they're just one side of the ship to the other is just a few few inches uh, to spare on each on each particular side here's a depiction of the uh, also from the uh, from the from the uh, north looking across you have the excavations of the old city located here in the center and down in this area here is where the bema seat and the forum was located here you have the gulf of corinth and then across the gulf is located um, uh, Delphi. And again, this is another depiction of the city. Here's the Bema Seed here, the Forum over here, uh, the Lycaean Road, which was the main uh, street in the city, and over here, the ruins of the Temple of Apollo. This is another depiction of the layout of the city. Here's the Bema Seed where uh, Paul will appear before uh, Gallio, the proconsul. You have the theater over here, the temple of uh, Octavia here, the temple of Apollo here, and just gives you some some little bit of an idea of the center of Corinth at that time. The outstanding geographical feature is the uh, Acropolis, the Acrocorinth, the height of Corinth, and this is seen in this picture with the Temple of Apollo in the foreground, and on top of the Acrocorinth was the Temple to Aphrodite, and this overlooked the city on top of a uh, the Acrocorinth, which had an elevation that was 1,900 feet above the city, and this was where they employed um, quite a number of um, of prostitutes. This is one of the things that gave our temple prostitutes, which gave Corinth quite its uh, quite a reputation in the ancient world. Uh, to Corinthianize was a synonym for lewd, lascivious, promiscuous behavior. Pro- uh, prostitutes were commonly referred to simply as Corinthian girls. Uh, Aphrodite, the goddess of love was the most popular of the deities in uh, in Corinth, and her temple was the center of worship where over a thousand cultic prostitutes 
applied their trade. Uh, it was, as you can understand, it was quite a town. In Acts 18.2, we're told that when Paul arrived, he found a certain Jew named Aquila. I think it's interesting that Luke does not describe him as a disciple. We don't know, I don't know why, but he just uh, identifies him as a, as a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus. Um, the fact that he says he, that Paul found him, that we, because in the next verse we discover that uh, Aquila and his wife Priscilla were also in the tent-making business, and so it is very likely that as Paul came into town in order to find uh, work and in order to find others that, that uh, other Jews that might also be in Corinth, he would have gone to the tent-making guild, and there he would have met a number of uh, people and been able to find out what the business opportunities were as a tent maker because it specifically stated several times uh, uh, that he labored for some time in Corinth. He had this uh, uh, going concern. We don't know if it was a large uh, operation or small, uh, but the fact that there were at least three of them working at it seems to indicate that it was somewhat large, especially if they are preparing tents for the Isthmian Games and for all of those who would be coming uh, for those games. He found um, this a certain Jew named Aquila who is from Pontus, which is on the north uh, northern part of what we call Turkey today, on the south south shore rather of of the uh, Black Sea. So you have the Crimea, if you can picture that in your mind, the Crimea and Ukraine on the north of the Black Sea, and then Pontus was on the south part of the of the of the Black Sea. There were some from Pontus who were in Jerusalem for the day of Pentecost. We don't know if Aquila was one of them or if he heard from one of them. We just don't know anything about his background other than he and his wife Priscilla were in, in Rome at the time that, um, uh, at the time that Claudius, uh, issued an edict removing all Jews from Rome at which time they had to leave. And obviously by that time, they had become believers in Jesus as the Messiah. But we don't know anything about how that transpired. And transpired. So what we see here is that um, they had recently, in verse 2, states they had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome, and he came to them. Now, this edict of Claudius probably refers to the decree in A.D. 49. This is one of those chronological benchmarks that we have for identifying the chronology of the life of Paul. There are just a few of these in the book of Acts that we can identify with, with certainty. Uh, we're told by Suetonius that in A.D. 49... Uh, Claudius expelled the Jews because of various riots and civil disobedience that occurred at the instigation of Crestus, C-H-R-E-S-T-U-S. And this is either a misspelling, uh, perhaps it's a reference to Christ, and it could indicate that uh, a certain amount of 
uh, disturbance into physical violence had erupted within the Jewish community over whether or not Jesus was the Messiah. It's a tantalizing reference. We just don't have enough information. But apparently from the time of 41, uh, AD 41 to 49, uh, the, the Romans were having increasing problems with the Jewish community in Rome. And when these riots and disturbances broke out uh, in 49, Claudius just expelled all of the Jews uh, from Rome. Paulus Orosius, who was a Christian writer of the 5th century, places the edict in the ninth year of Claudius' reign, which gives us a pretty firm date of A.D. 49. This is accepted almost without question by most, most scholars. Uh, the fact that they <clears throat> they left and they came to uh, they came to Corinth not long after that this is probably in 51 or so uh, this would indicate that that uh, Priscilla and Aquila were probably already believers in Jesus as Messiah before they left uh, left Rome. Uh, the population of Jews in Rome at the time of the expulsion edict was about 50,000. So this was a significant event in the life of the Jewish community in Rome. His wife's name is uh, mentioned here as Priscilla. That's the diminutive form of Prissa, which is a form that is used in several other uh, passages. Uh, Luke uses Priscilla, which indicates uh, that there's a little bit more of a familiarity and a closer friendship with them. And Paul mentions them uh, several other times. In Romans 16, 3 through 5, he concludes his epistle to Rome. By this time, the Jews were allowed back in Rome. Uh, and he writes to them to greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus who risked their own necks for my life, we don't know the details of that, but apparently there was a situation where their life was at stake, but nevertheless they uh, interceded for Paul so that they could save him. He says, they risked their lives, their necks for my, my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. Likewise, greet the church that is in their house. So they hosted a church, house church, in their home in Rome. 1 Corinthians 16, 19, he mentions them. As Paul wrote 1 Corinthians from Ephesus, he says the churches of Asia greet you, Aquila and Priscilla greet you. So apparently they traveled with him when he was he spent a year and a half in Corinth. And then as we'll see in the rest of the chapter, he leaves and he goes to Ephesus. He's on his way to Jerusalem, but he ends up spending two years in Ephesus. And Aquila and Priscilla are with him there. And then... They will leave from there to go to Rome. So he uh, sends greetings from Aquila and Priscilla back to uh, Corinth uh, when he writes the first epistle to the Corinthians, Second uh, Timothy 4.19. He tells, uh, in, in writing to Timothy, he says, Greet Priscilla, Prissa and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus. So at that point, Timothy is in Ephesus, so by this time they're back. They tr apparently traveled, moved around quite a bit. So we learn of these things, and now one reason that this off that they are often mentioned is because, it, when, and we'll get to this with Apollo, 
uh, here before long, that they they are involved in helping uh, Apollos come to an understanding of the truth. And I think I'll just wait till we get there before I talk about that. Priscilla's name is often mentioned first, but in 1 Corinthians 16, uh, 19, we have Aquila mentioned first, uh, Priscilla's name mentioned first on a couple of the other occasions. This for the reason for this, we don't know. It could be because she came from a higher social position than Aquila, but that's far from certain. That's uh, just one speculation. Uh, he worked hard. Paul worked hard at the uh, as a tent maker. We have a couple of passages that allude to this in First Corinthians four twelve. He talked about his labor among the Corinthians and said, we labor working with our own hands, being reviled, we bless, being persecuted, we endure. Later on in 1 Corinthians 7, he talks about the fact that that he did not uh, uh, take up a collection or live off of the grace offerings from the Corinthians. He worked and labored to support himself, even though he said that um, the apostles had every right to earn their living from the teaching of the word. He chose not to. And that's an important thing to understand is that that this is a decision. There are certain policies regarding finances and the support of a pastor that are not set as absolutes in the scripture, that there are different ways of handling different things. There are some pastors, uh, a point I've made before, because some people have gotten upset about it for one reason or another. Some pastors have labored hard and written and done uh, done work in providing uh, excellent tools of research, and those are provided through uh, publishing houses. Everyone has to make a living. We believe in uh, free enterprise, and they uh, are able to sell what they do and make a living that way. Others have chosen not to make their material, material or publish their materials that way, but to make them available as God provides the resources. That's the same kind of thing that Paul is saying. On the one hand, he said uh, he chose not to live on the basis of the offerings of the church in Corinth, but on the other hand, he said Peter travels with his wife and. Uh, he's fully supported like the other apostles as he comes from church to church, and that's fine. There's not one set pattern that fits everybody. It's a case-by-case situation between each individual and the Lord, and there's no right way or wrong way uh, to do it. There's just the way that you choose to do it. So there are areas like that uh, that are clear in the Scripture. Then we come to verse 4. Uh, verse 3 talked about, did I lose a slide here somewhere? I thought I did. Yeah, verse 3 back here. Uh, so because he was of the same trade, they were all tent makers, he stayed with them and they worked together uh, for by occupation they were tent makers. Now there's also a lot of debate about this, whether or not this trade primarily meant dealing with leather goods and sewing leather and and being involved with tanning and other things of that nature, uh, or whether it also involved uh, dealing with uh, textiles and other forms of material. Uh, some sources also indicate, one source in the uh, Mishnah in Perke Avot indicates that tent making was a common trade suggested for rabbis uh, because they were not to profit from the teaching of the Torah, but they were also not to be idle. 
And so tent making was a common, uh, commonly suggested uh, trade for rabbis to be trained in. So this may explain why Paul is trained as a tent maker. In Acts 18.4 we read, And he reasoned. Now we get into what did Paul do? He arrives a little bit tired, a little bit weary, spiritually weary. He's faced a lot of opposition and didn't have a lot of um, a lot of impact in Athens. How many times in our lives we get a little discouraged? Paul was no different. That doesn't mean he's out of fellowship. It doesn't mean that he was a failure. It just means he's a human being and we get tired and weary. I've known pastors who look out on the congregation some nights and they didn't see as many people there as they once saw and they would just make uh, kind of under their breath comments about, well, there's just a corporal's guard here tonight. Uh, we all are that way. We, As a pastor, you like to see a large response to your teaching. You work hard. You're diligent. You like to see more than five or six people in front of you on Bible class night. That's just normal and to be expected. But if they're not, and sometimes it lets you down a little bit, Nevertheless, that doesn't mean you're out of fellowship. It just means you desire, you've worked hard, you've done well, you want to have a ministry with people, and you want to see people respond to the teaching of the word. This is, this is normal. So Paul hit town a little bit weary, a little bit tired, uh, maybe feeling a little bit, uh, ineffective after leaving Athens, and God is going to encourage him as he ministers in Corinth. In verse 4 we read, he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath, every Shabbat. Uh, Shabbat begins at sundown on Friday night, ends at sundown on Saturday night. And so he would go to the synagogue, and there apparently was quite a large substantive Jewish community and synagogue in Corinth. And we see his methodology his pattern was always to take the gospel to the Jew first. Now, we have to understand this. I've heard some people suggest that, well, Paul didn't really understand that we were in the church age. Come on. Really? Paul didn't understand that? you got to be kidding. Paul knew that, but he also understood that he was in a transition period. This is one of the aspects that, that many... Uh, scholars have missed, and many people who aren't scholars have missed, you can't go to Acts and find prescriptive behavior. And there are a lot of denominations that do this. The whole charismatic Pentecostal movement has gone to Acts as if Acts tells you how to do church. Acts doesn't tell us how to do church. Acts tells us how the church was born historically. What happened isn't the same as what ought to happen. Okay? And just because things were done a certain way does not mean that that is a prescribed way of doing it. We have to go to the epistles to understand what the prescriptions are, what the imperatives are, what the mandates are. In Acts, we simply see what happened, and it, it represented a unique time in history. The temple was still in existence until A.D. 70. The church is given birth to in Pentecost of 33. So we have roughly 27 uh, or 37 years there between the birth of the church and the collapse and destruction of the temple, 
when there is a transition period going on, the, the Jews as Jews are still under uh, obligation to observe certain customs and certain rituals in relation to the temple because God hasn't ended the temple worship yet. Now, not everything that went on in the temple had to do with salvation-related uh, sacrifices. Those were all fulfilled in Christ. Uh, the church is giving is, has been given birth to, but it's in its infancy. It doesn't have a complete canon of Scripture yet. God hasn't even revealed uh, through the apostles all of the unique aspects of the spiritual life of the church age. That comes incrementally through progressive revelation, primarily through Paul's epistles, starting in approximately in approximately forty. 8 or 49 with Galatians, but it's mostly through the 50s when he writes 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Romans, uh, and uh, later the prison epistles in the, in the uh, early to mid-60s that, that the Lord makes clear what he is doing through this new organism, this new body of Christ. If you think about the prison epistles, Colossians, Philemon, Philippians, Ephesians, these are at the heart of our understanding of the Christian life in the church age. These are written by Paul between 60 and whenever he died, we'll mark it out around 67 or 68, three years before the destruction of the temple. We're in a transition period, as I pointed out, when the message is still to Israel to repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Uh, Peter offered the kingdom in Acts 2, offered the kingdom again in Acts 3. Paul is still following this pattern to the Jew first and then to the Gentile because God is still holding out the gospel to the Jew. And it's not necessarily set in stone yet, although it most likely would be, but God is still extending grace before judgment uh, throughout this period of time before it becomes uh, definite that the temple is going to be destroyed. That option was still legitimately being offered. And so Paul was still giving the gospel to the Jews in a distinct way. It's, their rejection of it is also providing further and further evidence as to why the necessity of the judgment in A.D. 70 was coming. So he goes into the synagogue and he reasoned within the synagogue every Shabbat. This implies more than one or two. Remember, he was only there for for a short time, about three weeks or so, when he was in Thessalonica. Now it's, it seems a much longer period of time. He reasoned in the synagogue. This is the Greek verb, uh, dialegomai. It's where we get our word dialogue, but he's not giving a dialogue. He is reasoning from the scriptures. He's giving a sermon. There would be question and answer at the end, but the word dialegomai is not to be understood as a dialogue. Uh, Paul wasn't up there giving a dialogue and just talking back and forth with the congregation. It has more to do with uh, discussing, arguing, presenting a case for his view. And it's probably it's an imperfect tense, which indicates continuous action in past time as opposed to an aorist tense, which just summarizes the action. But it probably has, an, uh, the ins- imperfect has several nuance, it's, it's probably an inceptive aorist, which means that he began to do this. So he began to reason 
in the synagogue every Sabbath. And the result was he persuaded. Patho, notice it's also an imperfect active indicative. But it doesn't, it wouldn't be an inceptive imperfect. It would be an iterative imperfect. Iterative refers not just to an ongoing action in past time, but let's say that you, you, last month you exercised every day. You didn't exercise continuously every day, but you got up and every morning you exercise. So it's referring to periodically, periodic activity that continued over time in the past. That's the idea here. So as he's reasoning in the synagogue, there are Jews here and there and Greeks as well, Gentiles as well, that are becoming persuaded. Uh, to persuade is the main idea here of the verb patho, and it means to bring someone to an understanding and conviction of the truth. The result of that is that they believe. So once he would say that he persuaded them, the next domino is assumed to fall, which is that they believe that Jesus was uh, was the Messiah. So this is a summary of what Paul is doing at the beginning of his ministry in Corinth. He is going to the synagogue every Shabbat. He is reasoning. He is presenting a case for Jesus as the Messiah from the Old Testament scriptures. There's not much yet that's been written in the New Testament. James has been written. Uh, Galatians has been written, but as far as I understand it, nothing else had yet been written in terms of the New Testament. So he's using Old Testament passages, Isaiah, uh, Jeremiah, uh, Ezekiel, uh, Micah, these other passages that you and I have studied. These are the primary thrusts, uh, many of the Psalms that relate to the Messiah. That's his focus. And so he's building his case He's explaining the gospel from the Old Testament, something we all should be able to do. Now, in verse 5, we change the topic. There's a paragraph shift here, and something happens. After Paul's been there for several weeks, we don't know how long, two, three months maybe, then Silas and Timothy join him. Uh, Silas and Timothy join him. They were sent from Athens. Remember, in the order of events, Paul had left Silas and Timothy when he was in Berea, according to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 1, and he went on to Athens alone. Later, Silas and Timothy joined him from Berea, and then before Paul left Athens, Paul sent Silas and Timothy north back into Macedonia. Silas went to Philippi, according to Acts 18.5, and Timothy to Thessalonica, according to 1 Thessalonians 3.2. The absence of a mention of Silas there would indicate that Silas went to the other location, which is Philippi. Paul left Athens then and went on to Corinth. And he, by this time, he's feeling a little discouraged, defeated, uh, uncertain, and fearful, according to Acts 18.9 and 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 3. He arrived there in the... Uh, spring of A.D. 51, and begins to look for some uh, companionship, some friends, some associates that he can have a ministry with, and goes to the tent-making guild, meets Priscilla and Aquila, and begins to have a uh, uh, begins to have a ministry in the synagogue at that point. Now, there's a 
textual problem here in verse 5. If you have your, if you're using a New King James Version or King James, it reads very differently from your New American Standard Bible, NIV, NET, uh, ESV, RSV, NRSV, uh, or any of the other, uh, translations based upon what's known as the Westcott-Hort uh, theory of textual criticism. I've given you a contrast or parallel here. You see that there's a difference uh, between the New King James Version, which is the top verse, and the New American Standard, which is the second verse. In the, uh, 18, in, in the New King James, it says Paul was compelled by the Spirit. Was compelled by indicates a translation of a passive verb. Paul is the subject of the verb, is receiving the action of the verb. Paul is compelled by the Spirit. In 18.5, we have a translation where it says, Paul began devoting himself. That's more of an active voice idea. Paul is the grammatical subject of the verb devote. Paul performs the action of devoting Himself indicates a reflexive action, and this indicates a middle voice in the Greek, which has to do with reflexive action. And there we read, he devoted himself completely to the word. In the majority text, in the majority of Greek manuscripts, plus uh, a number of others that support that coming out of the uh, Byzantine, Greek, Turkey area, uh, it has the word uh, pneuma there that he's compelled by the Spirit. In some of the North African manuscripts, some of the uncials, the older manuscripts, it has the word spirit there. Now, I believe that there are some problems with going with the older is better view. Older is better in a lot of ways. Older is better in wine. Older is better in uh, some other things and good antiques. But older isn't necessarily better when it comes to textual criticism because a more recent copy that is a perfect copy of an original text is a better copy even though it's maybe 800 years more recent than a bad copy that's older. So age really isn't a significant factor. If you have a copy that has not been done well and it's copied in the, let's say, around 150 or 200, and then there's another copy made of that in 300 and we have that copy, that's not going to be as good as a lost original from about 125 that was perfectly copied but into an 8th century. Okay, have I thoroughly confused you? So older isn't necessarily better. A, a, a more recent manuscript may be a faithful and accurate copy of an even, even older original. So the age isn't a factor. In the late 19th century, a couple of British uh, scholars by the name of B.F. Westcott and F.J.A. Hort, Anglican uh, scholars, uh, developed a theory of how to properly organize and handle these kinds of copyist errors and differences between manuscripts. One of their primary theories was that these older manuscripts that had been found uh, down on Mount Sinai, for example, Codex Sinaiticus, an, another older copy found in the Vatican, Codex uh, Vaticanus, 
and some of these, because they were older, they were better. And so there are about three or four of these Alexandrian manuscripts from North Africa, the Egypt area, that if any two of them agree, the theory basically goes, that's it. That's what it should be. But also, North Africa was a hotbed of heresy in in many ways in the early church. So that wasn't exactly an area where theological accuracy was the best. And when you move further north across the Mediterranean, up into Greece and Turkey, there's a vast storehouse of manuscripts. They're not as old, but there's many, many hundreds more of them, and more are being discovered. And so that's what uh, gave rise to what's become known as a, a certain text type called the majority text. The King James and New King James is based on a very small group of eight or 13 not quite so old manuscripts found uh, that was known as the Textus Receptus or the Received Text uh, in the Middle Ages at the time of the Protestant Reformation. A Roman Catholic scholar by the name of Erasmus put together the first critical text. Now, a critical text is where you compare several different manuscripts and they might have some disagreements in them and you make notations in the, in the margin at the bottom as to where the different, uh, where the disagreements might be so that a scholar can consult that and look at the bottom and see the listing of the different readings of that particular manuscript. Uh, the first edition of Erasmus uh, used only, I think it was only eight or nine uh, Greek manuscripts, the oldest of which went back to the 8th century. And then uh, as, uh, as he studied more, he found some other manuscripts. The most, he only used 13, and they weren't that old, and they weren't very good. Now we have hundreds and hundreds more that fit that same text type. So those 9 to 13 manuscripts that Erasmus used uh, were not the best, but they represented a certain uh, type of manuscript or region. That's why they're also sometimes called the Byzantine uh, text type. But it's uh, so the King James, New King James fits that pattern. That's why I like to use it, but it's not always the best. Now, without spending more time in a lot of uh, difficult minutiae related to textual criticism, I just want to explain this. In the yellow here, we have the verb. It's the same verb, suneco, that's used in, in, in both places. But in the New King James, in the, in the majority text, it's an imperfect middle indicative form. Or excuse me, that's the, uh, in the, in the New American Standard. Uh, it's a middle voice. That's how it's translated, devo- devoting himself, uh, completely to the word. In the New King James, King James, in what's called the majority text, it's an imperfect passive form. So the voice is different. And also there's the difference of being compelled by the, by the spirit in verse, uh, in the, in the majority text or by the word or to the word in the, uh, textus receptus. Now this word suneco, to complicate things. It's the same verb both places, but it has a huge range of meaning. It can mean to sustain, to guard, to seize, to distress with the idea even of being ill. Um, 
to distress or be distressed, to be ill, to control, to occupy one's attention fully, to urge, to direct, or to control. How do you choose? Context. Context, context, context. So you have two lines of evidence when you look at a problem like this. One is the external manuscript evidence. And that means we're looking at either older is better or we're looking at the majority text just to really simplify it. And my normal, my normal inclination is to go with the majority text. So that would be the second option. Now, the next question is, does, which fits the context better? And I would argue that, uh, the context is a time when Paul's, uh, indicates that he's fearful, he's concerned, he's a little distressed. Uh, the Lord's going to appear to him in a vision in verse 9 where we read, The Lord spoke to Paul in the night by vision, said, Do not be afraid, but speak, and do not keep silent. Now, the Lord wouldn't appear and say that if Paul weren't a little bit fearful at this particular time, just needed a little additional encouragement. So the idea of Paul's being specifically compelled or led by the Spirit to go to Corinth at this time fits the context that Paul needed this this direction. Now, the Holy Spirit doesn't lead every believer like this. This is unique to the apostles and the apostolic era. This is not something that happens. It's not prescribed. It's not directed. It's not qualified anywhere else in the New Testament. In fact, we don't even know how the Holy Spirit did this. Was this an inner urging? It doesn't say. Don't read that into it because you don't know. And see, people come to this and they go, oh, I know how it was. No, you don't. You weren't there. Was it through circumstances? Was it internal subjective feeling? Did Paul get liver quiver? It doesn't say. Don't read that in there. We just say this is unique to his apostolic role and God, God through the Holy Spirit in this verse and then in verse nine through a, through a vision of the Lord Jesus Christ gave an apostle direct revelation as to what his mission was. He did the same thing with Paul back at Troas. He didn't do it to Timothy. He didn't do it to Silas. He didn't do it to any other believers. He only did it with Paul. So we can't be like some Christians are, and they run off and think, oh, this is how it is for every Christian. No, it's not. It, it, it never was. God only spoke to a, a handful of people in all of history. Uh, he spoke to the prophets in the Old Testament, but only the prophets. He didn't speak to everybody. Uh, David, Elijah, Elisha, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel had unique roles in ministries. But they were unique in their whole generation. So this is not normal. But you have people today who don't understand. They have such a yearning for some kind of spiritual reality because they can't trust the Word of God anymore. Remember what happens in that great story where Lazarus, about Lazarus and the rich man? And Lazarus is the beggar outside the gate of the rich man's house. And Lazarus dies and he goes to paradise in Abraham's bosom. And... Uh, and then later the rich man dies and the rich man goes to torments because he wasn't a believer. And he, he begs Abraham to, to let Lazarus go back to life so he can go tell all of his brothers that they needed to believe in, in, in the Messiah so that they can, they, they, they can avoid torments. And 
Abraham says, if they won't believe the scripture, they, why would they believe experience? That's basically what he's saying. If they don't believe Moses and the prophets, why would they believe somebody who had been raised from the dead? See, we think, oh, if you could just see it, taste it, touch it, feel it, if you'd just been there when Jesus was there, people would believe. No, they don't. They didn't believe when Jesus was there. They crucified him. They rejected him. Now, having that personal experience is, is, is just a distraction. It's the word of God that has power, not feelings, not some kind of mysticism, not some kind of miraculous thing. It's the word of God. And all that other stuff just distracts people from the truth of God's word. Now, we have this word used one other place in a similar context, and that's in 2 Corinthians 5.14 where Paul says that the love of Christ compels us because we judge this. So it's this compelling of something can be, it doesn't necessarily have to be a, quote, feeling as much as it may be through the Word. And in other places in the Scripture, the Holy Spirit works through the Word. So when the Holy Spirit's compelling Paul, it could be as Paul is reflecting upon the promises of God to sustain him in difficult circumstances, God the Holy Spirit is using that to strengthen him and encourage him to go ahead and go to Corinth and to face whatever challenges there may be uh, similar to the ones he's already faced. And so verse 5 says, When Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. Now this is another important word that we find in, in the Greek, it's sum martyreo. Martyreo is from the noun martus. We have converted into English as a martyr, someone who gave testimony even to the point of death. But death isn't part of the original meaning. It's just somebody who's a legal witness. And sum martyreo means to witness together with something. It's the word that is used uh, most commonly in um, in the Scripture. It's used... Uh, uh, the, the testifying is used about nine times in the New Testament. We have passages like Acts 2.40. With many other words, he testified, that is Peter, and exhorted them and challenged them. Acts 8.25, uh, so when they had testified and preached the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem. This is talking about Paul and Barnabas. They uh, They went down to... Uh, Jerusalem and gave evidence of Paul's conversion. Acts 10.42, this is Peter witnessing to Cornelius the centurion. Acts 20.21 talks about uh, testifying to Jews and also to Greeks, repentance toward God and faith. Uh, Acts 20.24, Paul says, uh, the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Acts 23.11 but the following night the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. Paul is fulfilling his ministry and his apostle to be a witness. Remember when in Acts 1.8, the key verse for, for Acts, the Lord's parting words to the apostles were, 
stay here at Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes, for you are to be my witnesses. It's the noun form. You are to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost part of the world. So this use of this word here is just one way Luke is reminding us that Paul is fulfilling his mission and he is going to the Jews and giving testimony that Jesus is not just the Christ, but I think it has more force here if we translate it as the Messiah. Another use of the, the, the main verb, martyreo, which is used also used several times in Acts, but not in the same sense, but it is in Acts 14.3. Therefore they stayed there a long time, speaking boldly in the Lord, who was bearing witness to the word of his grace. So this idea of bearing witness all the way through is... Um, is a common in in, um, in Acts. We're going to stop here. It's a good place to break. Next time, Acts eighteen six, when they opposed him and blasphemed. So we're going to face Paul's faces opposition in the Jewish synagogue, leading to his trial before uh, Gallio. And so we'll look at that um, next time. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to be reminded that even the Apostle Paul at times grew weary, tired, fearful, none of which is a sin unless we use it as a justification for disobedience. But you needed to encourage him just as we are encouraged by your word and by God the Holy Spirit through your word. Father, we pray that we might be mindful of the fact that that as we struggle in the devil's world, we always face taste, testing but all of it is as such as is common to man, and you always provide a way to escape that we may endure it, not that we may avoid it. And so, Father, we pray that you would strengthen us in our times of challenges and difficulties to be that we might continue to be faithful witnesses to your word and to the truth of your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.